I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello. Hello, Nick Kitch, and welcome all to my 70s with an absolute legend, Mr. Peter Kitchen. Hi, Gabby. How, How are you? How you doing, mate? And when I say legend, I mean Doncaster Rovers, Orient, Fulham, Cardiff, Happy Valley, Orient, Las Vegas, Americans, Dagenham, Chester and Corinthian Casuals. That's one hell of a list, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> certainly is. Your your football journey began in Mexborough on the 16th of February 1952, the same area as Jeff Sammons? That's right, yeah. There's, uh, there was a few, it's, it was a really um, great area for, yeah. you know, young footballers coming through. Um, there was Jeff Sammons, obviously, he was playing for Sheffield United in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. Alan Sunderland was at the same school as me, you know, and since then there's been a lot of other footballers that have come from that area. So, uh, so yeah, it's a real good uh, uh, grounding for for young lads coming through. Now I'm guessing that both Alan Sunderland and Jeff Sammons wasn't in the same sets and grades as you, because you were extremely intelligent, went on and got A levels, and were a very very educated football player. Although they were both educated when it comes down to playing football, and Sammy was signed in Northern Cyprus by Tony Waddington, and instantly him and Alan Hudson were roommates. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, Sam had a very good career. I mean, he, yeah. he did very well at Sheffield United, and and then went to Stoke. And yeah. and funnily enough, I was at Doncaster. I remember playing against Stoke when they just won the League Cup final. Yep. And I think it was '72, and we played them in a pre-season friendly. And in that Stoke side, they had Gordon Banks in goal. Yeah. They had you know Dennis Smith and Bloor at the back. Uh, Sammy in midfield. Um, and also um, up front, they had Jeff Hurst. Yeah. So Stoke, Stoke were a real powerful team in those days. We had so many powerful, so many great sides in the 70s. And your football career started off at Doncaster as a teenager. And I was listening to uh, a previous broadcast of yours. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I didn't realise it was the great George Rayner that scouted you up. Yeah, I mean, I, I as I said, I, I didn't go uh, into football in the usual, um, the usual way with an apprentice or, and then coming through the youth team. Um, I, my, well, my dad. It started with my dad really. I was sixteen and I'd never had a coaching session in my life. I was a, you know, playing for the district team and, and and I was just a natural footballer. Yeah. And my dad, who was a coal miner, you know, I remember him in his Yorkshire accent saying to me. They're not going to pit that and stay on at school and get this in a good education, you know, in his broad Yorkshire accent. And so I stayed on at the um, sixth form college and left at 18 with three A-levels, 10 O-levels. Um, <clears throat> but while I was there, 
George Rayner was I was playing for Yorkshire Grammar Schools and and I played a few uh, a couple of games for England Grammar Schools um 11 and um George Rayner had been following me for a you know a few months and and coming to our games for Yorkshire and they approached me and asked me if I'd like a trial so I came down and started playing with the youth team um, got selected for the, the the rest of the side against uh, Middlesbrough, who won the youth league, and then um, I got asked by Laurie McMenemy, you know, if I'd like to sign as a pro. I was totally out of the blue. I mean, I'd never even dreamed about becoming a professional footballer, and so you know, I didn't I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd just finished my A levels. And I thought, well, it was at that time you could have gone into football if it didn't work out. There was plenty of jobs, other jobs you could do. Yeah. Um, so I signed, and uh, you know, as I say, the rest is history. Isn't it incredible though? With with George Rayner, he took um, Sweden to the 1958 World Cup final against Brazil. But then when he came back to England, I mean, he couldn't get a job in English football. And it was Alan Hudson that told me he was coaching Alan while he was on a week's holiday with the, with his brother and he, his mum and dad at, at Skegness. It's quite incredible, George Rayner's football story yeah. as well, isn't it? Well, I think I think George was. Uh, you know, did, did a lot of work with the schools and yeah. and that. So he wasn't, um, shall I say, the standard type of football coach in that mm-hmm. respect. And he, you know, he was a very quiet man, a very nice man. You know, he wasn't someone who projects, put himself forward and and that. So you know, I think that because he hadn't had the league experience uh, in England, yeah. that people were reluctant to you know, to, to go with him. But as I say, he was a very knowledgeable guy. And, you you know, you can't take a, a country like Sweden to, to the World Cup finals without having an awful lot of football knowledge and, uh, and awareness. Absolutely. And I think in the same... Um... In the same way that uh, Jimmy Ogan was overlooked and Jimmy Ogan worked a lot with kids in schools and particularly in Germany as well with Jimmy. And, and I think it's a common thread that in this country we haven't listened to coaches. We've listened to people that have given been given jobs. And in many of those situations, they haven't liked to give the football to players Monday to Friday or Monday to Thursday and then they expect you to play football on the Saturday. They seem to have had the opinion that if you're starved of the ball during the week, you'll want it the weekend. It's crazy, isn't it? it, I mean, that is exactly the mentality that pervaded through football in the early 70s. I mean, you know, Laurie McMenemy signed me for the, and the first year I did very well in, in, in what's now league one, but he got sacked at the end of the, end of the season because Doncaster were relegated and they brought in uh, Morris Setters Mm. who actually you know had a very good he'd had a very good playing career but he was a hard man he was you know he was the sort of hatchet man you'd have in midfield Um, and Morris is that's exactly what Morris used to do we used to run all week round the race course at Doncaster you know we were very fit (laughs) But we never we never got a ball. Crazy uh, jumping on, hurdles. Yeah, and then on on Friday, you know, you, you, you know, you'd practice a few free kicks. Yeah. You'd play a five aside, and it wasn't even a friendly five aside. You know that the players would be going in, and 
you know, kicking other players and they being, him and the coach would be encouraging you to do that. Yeah. You know, it was, it's incredible really when you look at the other extreme nowadays and you compare the sort of likes of uh, Jurgen Klopp and, and uh, Pep Guardiola, you know, and the purest way they play football. Then you compare it to, to the seventies and, and football is, is a little bit, shall I say, incestuous in that, yes. you know, a lot of people bring their mates in so that they're going to they're gonna play exactly the same way. They're going to encourage, you know, they're going to agree with the manager. And so you get that you get this perpetuation of it. And I know I know you you do your um, weekly podcast with with Terry Curran and, and Terry comes up with some fantastic you know, um, dialogue about managers and coaches in this country, yeah. and and he's right about it. You know, and and I think the reason is is really it's fear, yeah. it's fear of losing the job. You know, they the, the people get into football management, and the first thing they do is they go out and they try and start from a defensive point of view because that's what all the pundits say. You've got to have a strong defence. Mm-hmm. And I totally disagree with that yep. because I don't believe, I mean, I don't want to go you know, off the tangent on to talking too much about coaches because it's only, it's my opinion. Yep. But I believe that the only way you'll find out how good players are, are by giving them license to go out and play and you'll find out their weaknesses. Yep. And as a manager, that's what you should be doing. You should be looking at your players, find out the ones that are good enough and that could go on and progress, and the ones that have reached their limit, and then you, it, it should be a gradual process of replacing those players over a, a, a season, a couple of seasons, you know, and the best managers know how to do that. You know, they know how to get that balance of players right. But, you know, unfortunately, we, we, we seem to have this thing, well, let's go out, let's go out not to lose yeah. instead th- of going out to win games. I think you're right. So, the, the best managers are the, uh, are the builders. They want to build teams and they want to build teams on the philosophy of going forward and winning games. And no greater exponent of that than the great Bill Shankly. And you hit the bar against Liverpool in the early 70s when you were bottom of the fourth division. They were top of the first. How did that feel, that game against uh, Liverpool in the FA Cup? Oh, that was an amazing experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had at Doncaster, funny enough, had some very good young players. Yes. You know, under Maurice Setters, but we weren't a very good team. You yeah. know, there was, there was no real framework to the side. You know, it was about going out, running your nuts off. Yeah. And getting your foot in, trying to stop the other team playing. And we went to Anfield and we no one gave us a hope in hell. They were top of the first division. We were bottom of the fourth and struggling. And uh, we were one nil down after 10 minutes. Kev, Kevin Gigan scored. And everybody more or less thought that was it. It was going to be, you know, a total collapse and they'd probably get six. And then I scored a, an equaliser and big Brendan O'Callaghan up front, he scored a, uh, the, another goal and we went in at half-time 2-1. And the cop and the Liverpool fans gave us a standing ovation. Yes. Because we'd matched Liverpool 
and in the second half, it was a different story. They, it was like the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they threw everything at us, and Keegan scored, and it was two all, but we were holding out. And then in the last minute, the ball was knocked over the top, and my legs were, were as heavy as, as lead, and I was chasing it aimlessly, and all of a sudden, Emily News um, dithered, and so did Ray Clemens, and I just stuck a toe out. Yeah. And I, I toe-poked the ball over... Clement and it hit the top of the crossbar, bounced a second time on the crossbar, and then dropped onto the pitch, on the on nearly onto the goal line, and then Emily News ran back and cleared it. And had we have had that have gone in, we would have won that. That it would have been one of the great cup upsets of all time, I think. Um, but we played the replay um, at Doncaster in during the minor strike. It was. So there was no electricity or there were power cuts. So the game was played on a Tuesday afternoon. And uh, apparently every all the kids had uh, bunked off school for the afternoon. It's a joke. <laughs> we lost 2-0, but, you know, what a exp- great experience. And I know TC remembers that game um, very much. He certainly does, and he remembers his Doncaster years very, very favourably as well, because like yourself, he was a teenager that come into that Doncaster team. Stan Anderson was the manager that you most favoured at, uh, at Donny, and he had a totally different football philosophy, didn't he? Oh, to- to- exactly. It was just what I was looking for. I mean... I was a player that wanted to play with the ball on at, at my feet and, you know, I close, close control and, um, you know, quick feet. And uh, what, what happened, Morris got the sack um, and Stan Anderson came in. He'd, he'd been coach, he'd been at, Man- at Middlesbrough, yeah. manager at Middlesbrough. He played for all, all the North Eastern yeah. sides and captained them. You know, he was um, a very cultured footballer. And he'd been coaching at uh, AEK Athens. And he came back as manager, and the first training session, he got a great big bag of balls out and gave everybody a ball, and he started doing all this training with balls. And we, we were all looking at each other because we'd never never seen this. It's the same. <laughs> and it was amazing that the difference from me as a player, you know, was amazing. I think I'd, that season he came in, I think I'd scored about... 10 goals in 25 games and then the next the next 10 or 15 games I think I scored about 15 goals it was incredible and it you know he simplified it and he encouraged people he was calm and you know encouraging to players instead of picking up all the things you don't do yeah and that's a real thing I think in football you know when you hear the pundits telling telling you what players don't do but it's nice when when they say what they do what players do bring to a team yeah. you know so uh, so yeah it was great and and after that you know my my career took off in terms of goal scoring and I think I next three seasons I scored about 70 goals I was voted in the PFA uh, all-star divisional teams for two seasons um, and I had, you know, I was sort of at the point in my career, I was I was no longer a, a young player, shall I say. I was 23, 4. And, um, I, you know, I thought I've got to get away. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I've got to try and get to a higher league and see how good I'd be. Um, so I started saying, you know, I wasn't going to sign a new contract. Um, and Doncaster kept me for a whole season on on the um option of my contract and then um they they had an approach from Ipswich who were then second in the first division um asked me if I'd if I'd come on trial um and Ipswich first team had finished all their games so they were off in the in the middle in the middle east playing a couple of games and I played um a couple of reserve games and a, a testimonial game with the first team when they came back uh, and scored two goals in three games. And I thought Bobby Robson called me into his office at, at the end of the the period, you know, the loan period, shall I say, and said to me, you know, you've done very well, son. I'd, I'd like to sign you. How much would do Doncaster want for you? Mm. I said, well, they keep quoting 60,000, 70,000 in the paper. I think they'd accept 45, 50. Um, and he said, well, he said, I'd, I really want to sign you, but he said, I, I, I was thinking of, say, 25, I might be able to take it to 28, but he said, I can't even give promise you a game in the reserves. I've got Weimar, Mariner and Woods in the first team, and I've got um, Eric Gates, Alan Brazil, Robin uh, Turner, and um, Geddes, who was on loan at Aston Villa yeah. at the time. And he said, I can't even promise you a game in the reserves. So it, they offered 28. Doncaster refused it. And then I, um, I was told about a week later that they'd agree a fee with Orient of 45,000, um, which I later find out, found out was more like 35,000. Yeah. So I was really um, you know, disappointed in that. But... And uh, I came down to to Orient to talk terms with them, and I didn't really want to move south. Yeah. That was the strange thing that I'd, I'd said in the paper. I don't mind where I move to, but I don't want to go to London. <laughs> SRB Media. And you're sitting on a train going to London. Going to thinking. London. Oh. <laughs> and it was it was amazing because I, I I thought well. I'm not sure. I don't. They they wanted me for a three-year contract. I said, no, I'm not sure. I'll settle here. So I I said, oh, let me think about it. I need to talk to my wife. I need to look at houses and that because obviously it's a lot more expensive. Um, and I came back down to to Orient and we went looking around the areas and looking at houses and everything. And they agreed to to my terms of of, of a two year deal and uh, what I'd asked for personally. And um, so I shook hands with with the chairman and the manager George Petty. And I went back on the train that day 
got home to Doncaster, I got a phone call from Stan Anderson, and he said, um, how did it go? I said, yeah, it went, went okay. He said, have you signed? And I said, well, no. He said, but, I said, but I've agreed to sign. He said, only we've had another club come in for you. They've matched Orient's offer financially. So he said, and I, I said, well, who is it? He said, well, I, I don't think I should tell you if you've agreed to sign. And I said, well, look, I've agreed to sign. I've shaken hands on it. I'm not going to go back on my word now. And he said, oh, it's Tottenham. <laughs> so, but, you know, you had old-fashioned values in yeah. those days. You know, you, you shook hands and it your word, was... Your word. Yeah. And that was your word. And yeah. and so I I ended up coming to Orient. I mean, as it happens, you know, it, it worked out very, very well. But, you know, that's, that's the way football went. Um, you know, it could have been... I could have achieved more... Um, I enjoyed my career and I had a, a, you know, a good career, but you know, you always want, I always wanted to play in the first division. And I think that was the disappointment, not, not doing that. It was a case of deja vu, wasn't it? Because when you'd signed for Doncaster, you were also wanted by Leeds United and you'd all, already given your word, hadn't you, to Laurie? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he came to my house. He came, yeah. Laurie came to my house yeah. with the contract Yeah. Um, and uh, this was, this was, it was in 1970. And, um, you know, he said, well, I want to meet your parents. And he came and he said, you know, he gave them all the talk about, you know, looking after me and, you know, encouraging me and all the, all the things that managers say. And, um, and uh, so I signed the contract and he got in his car and he, he went off back to Doncaster. Mm. And uh, about three quarters of an hour later, got a knock on the door. And it was um, a scout from Leeds United. He knocked on the door and said, oh, I'm, I'm from Leeds United. I've come to have a word with you about whether you'd like to sign for, for Leeds. And I said, oh, uh, he said, I've just, I've just signed for Doncaster. And he said, oh, well, I can't say any more then because, you know, that it would be illegal for me to to talk to you if you've signed for Doncaster. So he said, you know, sorry about that. And <laughs> he headed off and, and Leeds were, it was the great Leeds team of oh, yeah. 68, 70. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, some of the players in that side I've admired, you know, I'd, I'd grown up um, admiring those guys. Um, funnily, funnily enough, Two weeks after signing for Doncaster and, and starting back on pre-season, we were playing. We played a pre-season friendly against that Leeds United side yeah. at Bellevue, and it was amazing. That that was me. I'd been watching all these guys before, and you know, never dreamed about being a professional. And I was sitting on the bench in this friendly against that great Leeds United side. So, you know, what a great, great uh, memory that was. When you look back at football, I honestly think that the greatest champions and the greatest team that we've ever produced in this country is that Leeds United team of, of the early 70s. I think that they didn't win as much as what they possibly could have and should have, but that come down to referees' decisions and, and briberies. But they were everything that you would want from a football club and more, wasn't they? Oh, they were, they were fantastic. I mean... They... 
you know, they had Big Jack at the back. Um, the fullbacks, Reini and Terry Cooper, were great overlapping fullbacks. Uh, in midfield, you had Bremner, Giles. Um, they they were wonderful footballers. They were ahead of their time, really. You know, they they could play as well as kick. Um, and up front, you know, Alan Clark was a great goal scorer. Yeah. And he had Mick Jones up front, who was... Um, you know, his foil, shall I say, did a lot of the running off the ball. And you had um, Eddie Gray and, you know, wonderful footballers. And and I, it was funny because that game, I remember that game distinctly, that, that friendly, because I was watching from the bench and a ball was knocked up front and our centre-half was a young lad called Steve, um, Steve Wignall, who went on to play and manage and uh, he jumped up with the ball with Alan Clark and the ball dropped and as he went to clear it Alan Clark went and kicked him straight through straight down his shin <laughs> and I thought this is a pre-season friendly <laughs> and you know you could see all on the park you know people like Johnny Charles were leaving their foot in oh, and yeah. you know you 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 learn if you watch Leeds you learn so much about professionalism yeah. And, you know, they used to pick the ball up as if they were going to do a throw-in and then drop it behind their back and then run further on, you know, and someone else had come and get it. They were, they just had this incredible professionalism yeah. and strength of character. Um, you know, I mean, Liverpool were a, were a great side as well, but I, I think Leeds just never didn't win, as you say, as much as they should have done. Absolutely. Who were your heroes growing up, Pete? Um, well, initially, the, I suppose the first one, I mean, the first one was obviously George Best. Yeah. Um, you know, I watched, you know, watched the European Cup final in 68 and, and Bobby Charlton. I thought Bobby Charlton was probably one of the greatest players this country has ever produced. And the man is such a gentleman, such a quiet, unassuming guy. You know, he, him and uh, George Best were, were unbelievable footballers. Mm. Um, but then I, as I sort of, you know, got into play myself, uh, my favourite player was Tony Curry. Yes. And, uh, you know, and I think it's funny because all through my, through my career, I've played with good wingers and and I've played with some good players. But I've never played with a, a really out-and-out creative midfield player and Tony Curry was just unbelievable on the ball you know and he didn't look ever to be under any you know rushed in what he was doing he used to pick passes out and then and then after that I would say Glenn Hoddle yeah you know played against Glenn Hoddle a few times and I mean the guy was a genius Mm. on you know on the ball um and you know just playing against those guys, you realise it. I'd love to have played with a creative midfield player. You know, you, when you play in a side that's that's in the lower divisions and you're you, you're struggling, you're not you know you're not in the top ta- top of the table and you're not one of the the top sides in that division. You realise the, the 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 reason for that is that there's only two or three or four exceptionally good players yeah. whereas the higher when you get into the first division the premier premier league there were seven or eight 
brilliant players. And, that, you know, you used to see when, when you had a creative midfield player, the, you know, after, after Hoddle, there was Trevor Brookin. I remember playing in a, in a couple of charity matches with Trevor Brookin. And, you know, I'd be running, making runs along the line and he was just picking you out all the time. But, uh, but yeah, I would say they were, they were players that stand out for me. Um, in terms of the international players, um, people like um, Eusebio and Cruyff, obviously brilliant, Pelé, you know, the, these players, they're icons, aren't they, of yes. football? And, and they'll be with us all forever, shall I say. You know, we'll always be looking at them and thinking about what, what great players they were. Absolutely. I remember interviewing Alan Clark and, and Sniffer told me how instrumental in his career in the early days when he was at Fulham, Johnny Haynes was. And Johnny would say to, to young Alan, just make your run, son, and I'll find you. And you're absolutely <laughs> right in what you're saying. When you've made that run as a forward player, to have a midfield player that can just put that ball in your stride. So, and Alan said, the easiest thing I do was put the ball in the back of the net. <laughs> and, yeah. and it does make your job easier when you have oh, them midfield players with creativity, doesn't it? I mean, the, when, you, when you play up front and yeah. you're, you know, you're, you're playing along the back line and you're looking to make runs in behind defenders and or you're coming short to... To, to get the ball and hold it up and then bring other players in. And the number of times you make these runs and you're waiting, you're waiting for the ball yep. or it comes, you know, uh, two seconds later, too late. And then when you get there, you get clattered from behind yep. or you run offside. Yep. And that's because players don't see, they don't see the bigger picture. They don't see the runs you're making and the space and where it is. And it's only when you see these guys playing that they play with this vision. And that's, that always stands out to me. Absolutely. Was your Orient debut as special in terms of goal scoring as what your Doncaster debut was, home and away? Because you scored it after 59 seconds at Shrewsbury, didn't you? Nine, uh, 90. Sorry, 90. 90. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, on my league. You were debut. a bit slow there, Kitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on my league debut, was at, at, yeah. at uh, Shrewsbury. Yeah. And uh, I scored uh, my first game in the team, and I scored after 90 seconds. Yeah. And the following week at home, we played Swansea, and I scored after 95 seconds. Yeah. And there was a joke going around the dressing room that with the players, and, and, uh, and they said, oh, if. Uh, Laurie says, if you haven't scored by, you know, within the first five minutes, you're going to bring you off half time. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, like, it, it took me a little bit longer, Orin. I think I was, I was um, a little bit more nervous, shall I say, yes. at, at Orient because when you when you go for a transfer fee, uh, whatever that is, whether it's a big fee uh, or a smaller fee there is always an element of pressure yeah. and I was making the step up from, from, you know, the old fourth division to the champ, what's now the championship. And although I felt I was going to score, I knew I was going to score goals. If I get the chances. A Serbian full podcast is available at www.patreon.com forward slash SRB media. A Serbian.